Welcome to Ideas Untrapped, and I am your host, Toby Lawson. Ideas Untrapped is a podcast that examines the role of ideas in a political economy. It's also a podcast about spreading ideas on growth, development, and progress. Hello, everyone, and a happy new year to you, wherever you might be listening to us. The Ideas on Trial podcast is currently on an end of season break, but not to worry, we won't leave you in the lodge. Over this break, we will be releasing a couple of special episodes. These are episodes and conversations that we have and couldn't fit into our calendar for the year. Today's episode is with someone that is very familiar to a lot of people. Professor Pat Tomi has been a leading public intellectual on the political economy for decades. Many of us were familiar with him from the show Patito's Gang, which was on TV for years. This was an excellent conversation for me personally because I was able to get a very rich perspective from him as someone who has seen multiple sides of how policy and politics work in Nigeria. He's a private businessman, he's been a consultant, he's been a politician, he was a former cabinet member. So he brought a lot of his experience and of course his insights and learning into our conversation. We talked about the degradation of leadership in the country, the collapse of culture, why he thinks the middle class in Nigeria is complacent, and a few other things. Um, You're going to love this and thank you always for listening. My guest today certainly needs no introduction. So I am here with Professor Pat Tumi. You're welcome, Prof. Thank you very much. I'm glad that you are not like uh, the typical Nigerian, because when a Nigerian says uh, somebody needs no introduction, it means two hours of introduction. <laughs> Thank God we received that. <laughs> uh, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a very long time. I would say, as a matter of personal interest, for about a decade, so I'm glad we finally got to do it. We know the state of the polity in Nigeria today. And there is the question of the political participation of the so-called good people. I mean, there's a view out there that the political space has been ceded to bad actors, so to speak. But you have been on both sides of the aisle. You have contested for office. You've been a public intellectual for decades. You've consulted with government. You've been a cabinet member. Where do you think are the fault lines, really? You know, not too long ago, I tried to synthesize this whole thing, and uh, I came to a couple of conclusions. The political space in Nigeria, unfortunately, suffered severe trauma in 1999. Um, why is this so? We saw what happened with military rule. We saw state capture. You know, I sit on some South African company boards and I go back and forth. 
And all these amazes how my South African friends carry on about state capture. It's a major subject in board meetings and all of that. And I kind of laugh. I say, this, you South Africans, you don't know what state capture is. Come to Nigeria and you know what state ownership is. <laughs> not just capture, it's taking home. Uh, um, uh, so we had a season of state capture, long hammer time of it under the military. And some of us became part of the fight to get rid of the military because it became clear that uh, sustained progress would be challenged if we didn't get a different way of making public choice in our country. So the concerned professionals, which I helped to found, played a very critical role in making that happen. When in 1999 we saw the military, or 98, the military decided to withdraw, the concerned professionals had to make a decision. Some from amongst our ranks thought we should transit into political life, as it were, found a party, you join one, and try and change the world as per our preachments, you know, as per the many so-called advertorials that we put out during the Abacha era, seeing how things should be done. Uh, amongst those, in those ranks where the now late Waziri Mohammed, who passed in the uh, crash, and then, and, and Donald Duke, some including myself, thought, okay, we are professionals, we've made our citizens' points and have uh, played a role as citizens to move our country forward, just go back to what we do and let the politicians now sort things out. But our judgment was was wrong, at least my judgment was wrong in the sense that we thought the real politicians would go into politics. A few of them did. Most of them didn't trust the military. They thought the military would not stay away and they would come back in a few years or months on the, with one, on the one guys or the other. Um, what then unfortunately happened was that the bagmen of the military, you know, quote-unquote, civilianized soldiers and their business partners moved into the, uh, into the space. And it's been tragic for Nigeria. We got the wrong people in public life. And even more sad, for us as a people, oil prices, which were down to single units in the uh, batch of years, suddenly went up and crossed even the $100 a barrel mark. And there was cash all over the place. There was, you know, a, a raining of dollars. And these wrong people pocketed most of it. And in pocketing it, they used money to erect barriers to entry into politics. And almost completely knocked, knocked out or good people or decent people. Nigeria continues to suffer that tragedy of uh, politics, of money, and of people who are not giving to service, sacrificial giving of themselves for the advance of the common good and service of society. So my take when we observed what was happening was that, uh, okay, we've made a mistake. Let's see if we can save our country from the mistake we made. This is actually what got me to begin to run uh, for office. But by last year, I realized that the, the problem was much, much broader than bad guys going into politics. Because in trying to challenge the bad guys, and we went into politics, oh, the first thing we heard was, ah, you see, people are not serious. You go and you form small political party, you know that you cannot have a breakthrough in this system, 
Uh, you don't want to test yourself in the big pool. Tell say, okay, if that's a problem, let's join them in the big pool and try and see if we can change from within. And uh, we found that that was really a complete waste of uh, of time because the nature of the political party system, as we have it in Nigeria, is actually structured to keep out. Not for inclusion, is to keep out people. What emerged in 1999 there's actually a set of business enterprises called political parties. Just in the way that the electoral process was designed, you know, have a campaign office in 36 states of the federation to be recognized as a political party and all of that, meant that it was only those who had stolen Nigeria's money who could afford to set up party structures. So, ab initio, the Nigerian political party became a criminal enterprise hmm. from get-go because it was only thieves. They don't say it, they didn't challenge me. Only thieves who had pillaged the treasury who could set up political parties. And once they had set it up, their business was to prevent those who would not play to their game from emerging through that system. Um, I, I was watching TV, amazingly NTA, a couple of uh, years ago, and uh, the panel included uh, uh, Mailafia, Okei, Kechuku, and Co. It was breakfast television. Uh, um, Kingsley said the law was moderating and I had that reference to the Nigerian state as a criminal enterprise I was shocked that that came out on NTA but it in many ways summarizes what has happened to us since 1999 so in the face of that the question is where's the root of this problem how do we get to it and so I last year wrote a book published early last year titled Why Not about state capture, creeping fascism, and the criminal hijack of politics in Nigeria. That's the subtitle. And uh, my conclusion in that book was that the real problem, the real people to blame, are not so much, yes, of course, they are these state captors, but the complicit middle, as I call them, the middle class, the educated elite, the businessmen who pretend that, uh, you know, they're not in politics, they just survive in this corner. But in many ways, their behavior make them complicit in Nigeria's move towards a failing or failed state. Uh, the fact that you refuse to be citizen, to stand up and say this is wrong, when it's going wrong, and the fact that you pretend that you're a businessman, you're not involved in politics, but you finance them at night, and you come and take contracts from them, and the way that they set things up, they give you some advantages, special benefits, and you are happy, but you don't realize that the conditions ultimately prevent sustainable growth and development. You are complicit in pervasive poverty that has defined the Nigerian condition. When, by 2018, the studies from the Brookings Institution, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation began to obviously identify Nigeria as the poverty capital of the world, to project that in a couple of years between Congo DRC and Nigeria, two extremely resource-rich African countries would have 40% of the poorest people on the planet, the most miserable people on the planet, Earth. It said to me that something fundamental needed to be done by this complicit middle to save their children's future. It's interesting you talked about the complicit middle, but I want us to go a bit meta and I like the historical perspective you took. One thing I 
sometimes discuss with friends and colleagues, which I'm going to ask you straight away is, how much do you think the resource costs, so to speak, explains Nigeria's political economy? Well, it's, it's a very simple explanation. It makes logical sense, but it points to leadership failure. Because not all those who have had natural resources necessarily have experienced the so-called resource curse. By the way, to explain that, the, the concept or the idea of a resource curse, and, and there was a study by the World Bank back in the, what was it, 90s or 80s? Yeah, 80s. Uh, it showed that resource-poor developing countries were growing faster than resource-rich developing countries. Of course, back in those days, Africa was uh, deep in, a, in the th- throes of what was described as Afro-pessimism. There were civil wars all over Africa. And these civil wars were over resources. And if we must be honest about that to ourselves, our own Nigerian civil war was fought over oil because of foreign interests in, in the oil. Diamonds in places like Sierra Leone led to civil wars. All over Africa, there were these civil wars. So it seemed like the elite were permanently struggling for control over these natural resources. And so these resources had more or less become a curse that was preventing progress. Where these resources were not even leading to direct fights, the nature of how they were extracted, usually in enclave economies, because I tell people, the Nigerian oil industry, you know, can actually go on fire. Sorry, not, not the oil industry. Nigeria can actually go on fire, and the oil industry will not notice because they are a small enclave sector outside the economy. All that they do is put money in the treasury, employ very few Nigerians. Now, when few people are employed, the economy doesn't grow. At the heart of the business of economic growth is putting talents to work and stimulating further production. So the resource curse tends to very frequently follow having natural resources. But... There are many examples of countries that resources have worked for. So the real issue is leadership and the failure of leadership. Um, take a couple of the known examples. Norway is an interesting country that has oil and gas resources uh, led to significant generation of wealth. Uh, Norway, very early in the day, noted the fact that these resources belong to all Norwegians for all times. And the one generation cannot consume it. It's an intelligent way to look at this matter. And so a portion of everything earned had to be saved, invested in instruments abroad and elsewhere, the so-called sovereign wealth fund, and inflows from those investments will continue to fund budgets for generations to come. Um, it helped... <clears throat> now we manage around a number of the big challenges that come with the so-called resource curse. Compared actually to Holland and how it managed its early gas revenues in the 50s, Holland was receiving significant revenues from gas fines in the North Sea, and this led to, you know, ballooning of budgets. People could get whatever they wanted. And then, of course, when the Dutch government began to try to rein things in. People found all kinds of... Because it was, at the point, you profited more staying at home than going to work. 
the benefits from sick leave and all of that were so much that um, people were working less and less. So when governments are trying to change things to tighten the processes, the Dutch found ways of being sick and even discovered the most difficult to diagnose kinds of diseases like backache. Few doctors can properly diagnose backache. So Holland became a country of backache. That's why it's called Dutch disease till today, uh, because what happens is that investments or revenues that come from there go into investments that create activity in the non-tradable goods sector of the economy. For example, in Nigeria, we began to build race cars, build all these concrete uh, things. Cocoa, agricultural produce, given our exchange rate, became poorly priced. So the cocoa farmer would make a better life if he was a messenger in NMPC or if he was a laborer for Julius Berger building one of those roads. So he left the farm in Ileoluji and came to be a messenger or a construction worker. Consequence, outcome, we have uh, volatility in oil price swing, contract is abandoned, workers are laid off, nobody's farming in Ileoluji, and the guy is unemployed in Lagos. These things were all the outcomes or consequences of a so-called resource curse. But beyond showing the example of Norway, even close to home in Africa, Botswana. Botswana with diamond exports was the fastest growing economy in the world from between 1968 and I think early 1980. But Botswana very, very early in the day realized just like the Norwegians, that these windfalls needed to be saved. And so Botswana has a feature fund into which it put most of these investments and it did not distort its economic development and maintained a steady trajectory. So you can take the examples on and on uh, in Malaysia and others. So yes, there can be a resource curse, but the real meaning of resource curse is failure of leadership. If we have had leadership in Nigeria, we would have been able to manage better the revenues that came from crude oil. I give a simple example. For more than 25 years now, I have consistently urged that revenues from crude oil should be partitioned into three buckets. One bucket, which should have a sliding position based on the nature of the market, but fairly conservative, let's say at prices of say last year, no more than $35 a barrel should enter the distributable pool fund, that is the so-called FAC account, which is shared between the uh, tiers of government in the fiscal transfers that take place. Everything from 35 to say 55, if oil prices were to go up, would go into a stabilization fund. And this stabilization fund is going to be a fund held in near money instruments that can be easily realized such that should oil prices swing down say to $15 you would not have the kind of you know crisis that you get you then take from this stabilization fund and ensure that a consistent funding at $35 a barrel will continue uh, down the line and then everything above 55 goes to future fund, so-called sovereign wealth fund, which can be invested abroad, 
uh, as many of the Saudi and uh, other sovereign wealth funds are invested for future revenues to flow back, or they can be invested in long-term infrastructure in Nigeria, which generations 100 years from now can profit from, but managed as such as a sovereign wealth fund. I've preached this for clearly over 20 years, and that nobody has taken it seriously enough shows the responsibility of the political class in Nigeria, not recognizing that the revenues that come into this country from a natural gift belongs to them and their children's children's children, but they're willing to spend it today mm. in their own interest. Mm. I mean, there's a lot to unpack from your answer, so I'll try and be peeling each layer little by little. Uh, let's talk about this failure of leadership because some would argue that, well, comparing Nigeria to Norway is not really analytically helpful or accurate, or even Botswana because at each country's founding or throughout history, the initial conditions for these countries were not the same. So what do you think is unique or specific to Nigeria that let us evolve the way we did without the process that can generate quality, conscientious, long-term leadership? Well, I think that Nigerians like to make excuses for all of our errors. I don't think there's anything that makes Nigeria different from Botswana, even if you can provide some spurious argument for Norway. The human condition is the same. Botswana actually provides a, an embarrassing counterpoint in terms of that question, because at independence, Botswana was a significantly backward country, much fewer educated people, so much so that the civil service of Botswana was supported significantly by Nigerians. The first chief judge of Botswana was Justice Aguda of Nigeria, returned to Nigeria to serve. Um, a couple of years ago, many years ago actually already, when Nigeria was having all this funny crisis, central banking is managing things, I think the Nigerian Economic Summit Group invited the governor of the central bank of Botswana, a lady, to come and uh, show us how they do it. And I think the lecture was here at the Golden Gate or so in Lagos. And the poor woman was like, you guys taught us the Central Bank of Botswana was more or less set up by Central Bank of Nigeria. Mm. You know, So so there's just a fundamental irresponsibility in the character of the Nigerian elite that has taken us down the path we are, let's be honest. And we try to find excuses all the time to explain it. Quality of leadership in Nigeria 50, 60 years ago was, is far superior to that of today. So if you're talking about comparing with others, let's compare with Nigeria. Um, in the 50s, when self-government came, the new leaders of Nigeria, one of the first things that they realized was that uh, Nigeria was uh, significantly disadvantaged in terms of creating jobs for the development of its people. And that disadvantage came majorly from the fact that colonial governments purpose was not to develop the country. It was to create opportunities for extraction of raw materials for export to the metropole. And so when between 56-57 self-government came to Nigeria, new Nigerian leaders were looking for what to do to provide lots of jobs, grow the economy, 
clearly industrialization was a path to follow. At that time, um, a West Indian economist, who would become the first black man to win the Nobel Prize for Economics, Arthur Lewis, was working on um, industrialization in the West Coast of Africa and actually wrote a, a book, uh, Industrialization of the Gold Coast, which is Ghana. And Arthur Lewis essentially drew on the work of Raoul Prubish. Raoul Prubish was then the Executive Secretary of the Economic Commission for Latin America. He would go on to become the first uh, Director General of UNCTAD. The Prubish thesis is what generally came to be known as the Import Substitution Industrialization Strategy. And that was a prescription generally offered around. The new leaders in Nigeria quickly thought industrializing and, of course, turned to the Prohibish thesis. The premier of Western region quickly decided to demarcate an area in Western region into an industrial park or industrial estate. That area is what is today Ikeja Industrial Estate in Lagos. Now, once he made the decision to do that, went out canvassing for investors to set up factories in this industrial park. Uh, his other Nigerian counterparts, in a competitive mode, decided to go similar track. Um, Premier of Eastern Region thought not to be outdone by that of Western Region set up the Abba Potakos Transamadi Industrial Estates and went out to canvas, you know, for investors. In fact, if you read Chief Jerome Udoji's book, Under Three Masters, he actually has a, a photograph of himself and Dr. Michael Lockbarra, the premier, uh, alighting from a KLM aircraft in Amsterdam, I believe, in search of investors in the Aban Podakot industrial estates. In fact, a company like Pfizer moved from Lagos to Aba as part of the whole incentivizing stream. Uh, of course, the premier of Northern Region, uh, Sir Madubelo, focused on the factor endowment of the North in trying to invite the Hong Kong um, textile manufacturers into Kaduna, and Kaduna became the hub of Nigeria's textile industry. Now that leadership, which led, for example, I mean, at the time of self-government, uh, the marketing boards, which was the basis of colonial produce exports, had huge reserves in their bank accounts in the UK, Wema Board, Northern Nigeria, Eastern Nigeria. And um, by 1960, as Paris Okibo shows in his book on Nigerian public accounts, the Reserves had all been drawn down to almost zero. And, of course, my trick question for MBA students is, what do you think happened to the uh, money? In the current mindset, they say, ah, they've stolen the thing. <laughs> and I said, no, they stole nothing. They actually basically drew down those reserves to build those industrial parks and to try and get Nigeria on a quick path of development in agriculture, working with the Israelis, the Western Nigeria, Eastern Nigeria created all these uh, farm settlements. An egg became a penny as a, as a target of the government at the time and all of that. Um, growth took place. You know, they tried to provide appropriate education to support this growth. Um, the big competition between Western region and Eastern region in education front, highlighted by the crisis of free education when Eastern Nigeria tried to match Western Nigeria, the quarrels between Udoji and uh, Zeke over that and the philosophy that Eastern Nigeria had to evolve to enable it to leapfrog in education. All of these were developments that followed more study leadership from that era. Um, if you look around those political leaders from the 50s, 
And they were generally intellectual type people in the limitations of the time. Zeke was a huge intellectual, Chihuahua was a huge intellectual. Tafahabalewa, the golden voice, may not have had strings of degrees, but he was such an educated man. Uh, Amadu Belo. Um, you look around now, and we have more certificates around, but many of the people who call themselves political actors or leaders today are Lilliputians compared to these men in terms of intellect. Hmm. And if you also look at those who were around them, you looked at Chivaolo, you had people like Professor Aluko around him. You looked at, so they all had intellectuals around them. Today, what do you see around politicians? Pimps and thugs. So the failure of leadership in Nigeria is not because of any peculiarity around us, because we had better leaders 50, 60 years back. What happened, pure, simple, was that we allowed the military, who tried to lower everything, essentially created their friends, who were the guys who organized parties and brought girls together for them. And those their friends became the new politicians. Mm. And that's why our country is where it is. I was getting to that last point because, I mean, you talked about leadership. And I think it's a point that transmits downwards because if we look at the quality of our cabinets, the quality of our bureaucracy, the civil service itself, it, it has gotten really quite bad. And uh, historically, I mean, you were a member of cabinet when you came out of grad school. And, uh, yeah, sometimes people confuse these things. Oh, you were so young when you were, you know, it's not a matter of young. I had two master's degrees and a PhD. Mm. So the, the fact that I was 26, 27, not the factor. It was yeah. that, you know, even besides having those degrees, I had already been editor of the most highly regarded news magazine in this country at that age at that time. So it wasn't just degrees. It was both the education and the exposure. So my question would then be that what could have been done to avert, I mean, some kind of counterfactual history here, what could have been done to avert the road we traveled that led us down this path? I mean, as fate will have it, the government that you were part of was brought to an abrupt end by the man in power today. Hmm. So it's like we keep recycling the same bunch from that era. So what could have been done differently by the elites of those times? Yeah. Well, perhaps a couple of things. First of all, in January of 1984, after the coup d'etat, I actually granted an interview to the New York Times, which was published, I think, on the 8th of January, 1984. And I said in that interview that I think Nigeria may have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. It's true that there was a lot of corruption, but it was something that was beginning to settle. If you look at the Shagari cabinet of 1983, the one that I came in with, and compare it to the one of 79, it's a huge difference in both the integrity uh, of the people, in the competence of the people. So the first was the excitement of democracy. So all the people who run around got positions in it, but learning took place during the first four years. And systematically, the president was bringing in new kinds of people. If you look at the team that came in 83, Gamaliel Onosode, Philippe Siodo, you could just go on and on and on, you know. I was a fresh 
returning from grad school. I had no godfather, nothing. It was just the strength of my ideas that excited the people in power, and they invited me in. And if Shagari had spent four more years, it would have been a different country. And imagine that Alex Ekwemi had then become president in 87, which was the projection. By the time he finished his term, Nigeria would be a world apart. But I think the soldiers did not want Ekwemi to become president, and that's part of the reason they struck in 84, 83. And they threw the baby out with the bathwater. So, Nigeria lost, I don't know, a generation or two in terms of progress with the coup of 1983. And then his soldiers came and became real brigands, stole everything inside. They accused Shagari of corruption, but then, you know, every military regime after was 20 times more corrupt than whatever it was that could have been seen in the first Shagari three, four years. Um, then, come 1999, the possibility for corruption. I know that many foreign governments suggested that the Abdusalam government just kind of try and do it right. It doesn't matter. I spend two, three years and get and do it right and get a proper process. But uh, I don't blame General Abdusalam Abubakar, but he was in a hurry to just get out of the place. And so we allowed a crop of bandits to move into the space, and they've been down here ever since. I want to draw some parallels there. Uh, in 2015, that give us the administration that we have today. A lot of similar arguments were made. PDP is corrupt. They have mismanaged the treasury. Nigeria is not going forward. We need change. But, I mean, here we are. Fundamentally, Prof, do you think it's a human capital problem? Do you think it's a cultural problem? Do you think uh, it's adult literacy? Do you think our national IQ is low? I mean, I'm just... It's it's a collapse of culture. There's been a collapse of culture in Nigeria. See, values shape human progress. And in Nigeria, values just totally crashed under the military. And it just, just kept getting worse. And those who could stand up did not stand up. Talk about 2015. Um... Last that I expected was that the leadership would have set up the way they set up after the elections. That's between you and I, pure candor, I was part of those that pushed for that change. Is let's finally deal with this corruption. I can see publicly that the, what was set up after was more corrupt than what was there before. If you just look at the, the individuals, look at the antecedents, and you will know that if you got a different result, it would have been <laughs> extraordinary. Couldn't have had a different result. Just some of the PDP guys moved into. APC, and the game just continued. I would have been surprised that the government would... After I had the cabinet, I knew that it was over. Hmm. At this point, um, I think what we can then move to is, what can we do? Well, the citizens will have to rescue their country. I mean, the nice thing about countries overcoming difficult times and bad regime errors, is that there are examples to show that it is possible. See, I lived in the United States when things were quite bad economically. A nice guy in power, Jimmy Carter, things were going really south. And um, a very old man called Ronald Reagan defeated him in the elections of 1980. Reagan called on the American spirit. And the youth of America responded. 
youth of America, you know, when I was in grad school living in the U.S., typical March, April, lots of young people working on their CVs, looking for the job. I returned uh, on sabbatical years later after the Reagan, and March, April, young people were working on their CVs. No, we're not working on their CVs. They were working on their business plans. Many of them were hoping to be billionaires before their 26th birthday. They created an industry, the dot-com revolution. Saved America. I watched uh, Brazil come out of an era where things were so bad. The jokes were all about Brazil, the great potential that will always be a potential. I used to visit Sao Paulo, and uh, you would almost be able to get drunk on the streets by just walking and breathing because the struggle to you know, use alcohol to power cars <laughs> was such... Uh, you went into a store, you bought something. By the time you started shopping, uh, when you start shopping, by the time you get to pay, prices may have changed three times. Finance ministers were, you know, being changed every three months, a mess. And suddenly, long stories, I can't tell it all here. I've told you many times. An academic who used to be at the Economic Commission for Latin America, who was a radical that I took on as a graduate student, uh, his thesis, which was a dominant thesis of a group of Latin American scholars who were called dependistas at the time. It was a dependency theory. Mm. And I once said, look, dependency theory is elegant theorizing with no redemptive value. And he was suddenly asked to become finance minister. To his chagrin, he made a decision to put his legitimacy to work for Brazil, personal legitimacy. However, not to let his former ideas rule him. So he brought together a bright young Brazilian economist. Let's agree on where Brazil should be going. What they agreed to was the exact opposite of his whole intellectual life. His colleagues like Osvaldo Sungel, who had argued for selective delinking from international capitalism and all of those, all the ideas were thrown away. This young economist suggested Brazil go full blast with globalization. Inflation came to a screeching halt. Brazil began to turn around. He became president of Brazil after that tour. And his work was followed very nicely by Lula da Silva. Inácio Lula da Silva. With uh, programs like the Bossa Familia program, these conditional cash transfers that we are trying to implement and stuff like that. And suddenly Brazil was one of the leading economies in the world again. Um, it is possible to do these things but you know, one of the reasons I'm not in despair about recession, recession, is you need sometimes to cripple a system like this to show that the people who run it lack the legitimacy and to have a new order emerge from the rot and come back up. We have had men who, driven by their egos, essentially have become, as I described them in something I wrote, moral cripples and amoral monsters who arrogate so much to themselves, they know nothing except how to abuse public resources for their personal egos. You need something to bring them down and hope that there is enough intellect, sacrificial service left in a, a few people who can provide a new way of. However, a couple of things need to be borne in mind. Uh, bottom up, is a very important way to go. 
the people have been solving many problems for themselves. And institutions have been emerging quietly in those levels. Uh, a friend of mine, Deborah Browntingham, uh, she's been at American University in Washington for many years now. But she, she, so at the time she was doing work in Nigeria, she was at Columbia University. And she's written about institutions and how they've emerged in places like Abab, Onisha Market, Newi, and the way they traded with China. Uh, for some time now, she's left Nigeria and been studying China. Of course, like many scholars. Yeah, he, he's a sinologist. I know her. Mm-hmm. Uh, through one of our grad students, actually, Ryan Briggs. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I actually saw Debbie last year. I was in Washington. Um, somebody was hosting a lunch or something, and she was there. Um, so those have clearly been markers of the way Nigeria should be traveling. The big trouble is that the current political order has a way of actually intervening negatively to stifle. I have said repeatedly that the biggest risk of doing business in Nigeria is regulatory risk is government. Uh, and I have proof for it. Even my own entrepreneurship, if you check what government has taken from the product of my work, I'm in deficit at least 15 billion naira. I can tell you from what government has damaged. It includes company that put Nigeria on the internet, founded in my office. Includes what was supposed to be a Silicon Valley type initiative more than 20 something years ago that the local government, state government, politics are uh, this comes from this part of the state, uh, Igbo people versus uh, uh, they will make more progress. Kind of silly nonsense. And government sabotaged it. It includes bank that was stolen and was damaged. So, um, how do we deal with the damage that public policy and regulatory risk? does to business. Uh, it's going to be citizen action. Ignorance used to make it easy for governments who are really politicians using government as excuse have done to businesses or people they are either against or want to steal or just don't understand. And a clear and enlightened media can be very important in getting this done. Thank you very much, Bob. It's a great pleasure. You can subscribe to the podcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the rest. Or you can just subscribe directly at our website, ideasontrap.com. Thank you, and see you next time.